Hey everyone, Dr. Jones here with another episode of Seeing to Lead. And this episode is the fourth episode in the Divergent Thinking and Leading series where I speak with Sam Terrell, who's a serial entrepreneur and a TEDx speaker. He's the founder of Divergent U, which is a one-year alternative to college in Orlando, Florida. It helps students discover their professional purpose and achieve their dream lifestyle. Now, doesn't that sound like something we all wish we could do? And I'm super excited to be talking with Sam for the fourth time because, one, we agree a whole lot in uh, philosophy and where we're coming from. But two, you know, we talk about the difference of divergent thinking and, and the impact that can have on somebody's life. And we're going to look at some stats, or I'm sure St- Sam's going to tell us some stats about what happens to divergent thinking as people progress through the public education system. I'm about disrupting the public education system and making it so that it serves students in a new and different way, in a new and different world, so that they can reach the greatest level of success. You know, in the first episode, we talked about Divergent U itself and the leadership philosophy behind it and some of the things that we see in public education. The second one was about developing leadership and the process that goes along with that. And Sam gave us a great framework. I really encourage you not to just go back and listen to all of these, but make sure you go back and listen to episode two. And then in episode three, man, that was a long episode and it was in depth. And Sam gave us a phenomenal framework and a couple exercises how to implement it right down into the classroom, having to do with things that hold us back. He calls them the 12 limitations that have been developed over time. So Look, this one on human development, we're going to look at the whole picture, the big picture. What are we doing for the human beings we serve so that they can reach their highest level of success possible? And I'm sure this is going to be a great episode. Divergent thinking, to me, is the root of all soft skills. I actually think that soft skills is the wrong word. There's nothing about that that's soft, right? It's a divergent thinking skill is how I would frame that because it's a skill that can't be measured the same way. So traits like leadership, emotional intelligence, creativity, complex problem solving, decision-making, these are all things that are quote-unquote soft skills, but they're some of the most valued skills in the world today because they can't be delegated to machines the same way, right? The convergent thinking skills are much easier to delegate. And so our system hasn't adjusted to the change in the market that's requiring and demanding more leadership, which to me is rooted in divergent thinking. And so we want to help students to develop their individual vision, right? Their individual perspective. Dr. Chris Jones here and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thought dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. Sam, welcome back, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say this time around. I'm excited to be back. This has been a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I'll jump right in with the statistics you mentioned. So there was a case study done by Breakpoint and Beyond that tested divergent thinking in students. They tested over 200,000 students from kindergarten through the graduation of high school. And just quickly for anybody who's catching this episode first time through, the difference between convergent and divergent thinking. Convergent is converging to a singular destination or set point. So you're thinking to a singular point. Picture a question like two plus two. The answer is four. It'll always be four. The divergent thinking is asking or answering a question that has limitless answers to it. So a question like how many uses can you think of for a paperclip? There's limitless answers to that. And so they tested students in their divergent thinking from kindergarten through graduation high school. And 98% of the kindergartners tested at a genius level in divergent thinking. By the time they graduated high school, only 2% of the high school seniors tested at the same level as the kindergartners in their divergent thinking abilities. I think that's really what we're talking about today is how do we change that? How do we shift that so that students are more equipped with divergent thinking? Because divergent thinking, to me, is the root of all soft skills. I actually think that soft skills is the wrong word. There's nothing about that that's soft, right? It's a divergent thinking skill is how I would frame that because it's a skill that can't be measured the same way. So traits like leadership, emotional intelligence, creativity, complex problem solving, decision-making, these are all things that are quote-unquote soft skills, but they're some of the most valued skills in the world today because they can't be delegated to machines the same way, right? The convergent thinking skills are much easier to delegate. And so our system hasn't adjusted to the change in the market that's requiring and demanding more leadership, which to me is rooted in divergent thinking. And so we want to help students to develop their individual vision, right? Their individual perspective. And that's seeing every student as a name, not a number, I think is really important piece of that because we're the divergent thinking approach is the idea that everyone is unique. Everybody has something unique to contribute. And we're not trying to put people in a box. We're trying to expand from the uniqueness that they have. So I think that's a good place to to kick us off. You, you think <laughs> that's a great place? You said so many things. You, you talk about individual vision, right? So students as individuals. And this is maybe where we dig in. The idea that schools talk about individualizing instruction, individualizing experiences students can be or recognizing their them as individuals. Schools talk about student voice and how student voice matters. We want students to give us feedback and tell us what they like, what they want, what they would like to see. And we accept all that and we work to get that as long as it fits in the confines of the rules of school. So to me, it comes down to modeling. We're modeling the idea that we don't really want them to think divergently. So so let's dig into the idea of looking towards a limitless future, because really that's what we're looking at. How do teachers, leaders, schools, how do we regain the ability to model divergent thinking to students so that we don't have that drop off? I mean, 2%, like, really? Really? What do we, I, I think, what are we doing? And you know, I, I mentioned before we before we hit record the idea of, of Apollo in the movie Apollo 13, where they're stuck in space, very serious, life-threatening condition, where they don't have an answer. 
and they dump a box of parts on a table and say, we've got to figure out how to get them down with what's in this box. Go. And I, you know, how often do we see that in classrooms? We don't because there's a certain way to assemble those parts based on the rubric, based on what you're going to get for a grade for it. So why we say we want divergent thinking, we are not modeling that. How do we fix that in your opinion? Yeah, there's so much to to unpack there. Similar to what you said. Um, you just said a lot that I want to respond back to as well. I think to go to the Apollo example, that's actually something that we do in the classroom is we give students a goal that is an impossible goal. So we'll have them set the goal. We'll say, what's something that is, it's usually in alignment with something that we're doing within the class. So this could be applied to many different things. But let's say, what's an impossible three-month goal that if we as a group, and you separate the students into like groups of five, if you as a group were to achieve this goal in three months, what's an impossible goal that we can set? So students, in the case of the business class, might come up with, you know, raising $3 million for my company or gaining an audience of 50,000 people on social media, something that feels very outside of the realm of possible for the students in the class. That would just be a business example, but it could be anything. And then you give them a timer for 15 minutes to solve the problem as a group. All right, you got 15 minutes to go. And what that does is it turns off the critic in their head because they don't have time to criticize. They have to come up with an answer. And so it I think that puts you more in the divergent thinking state of mind. You're able to brainstorm more freely without as much criticism or judgment because you don't have time to judge. You just have to get an answer to present, right? So the answers that come out of that are usually much more thought out than you'd think. Sometimes they're not. I mean, sometimes you come back and there's not a great strategy, but often very unique ideas come from that space. And what it teaches the students is that You can solve the problems that you think are impossible if you set aside the time to do it. And if you collaborate with others to brainstorm, because you might not have an idea, but somebody next to you might, and that can bounce off of each other. So that's one very tactical way. On the broader scale, I think I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Just the role of control in leadership, where I think a lot of leaders want to have control. And I think our system is built in a way that tries to control the outcome in many ways. I would say in, in divergent use classes, I try to make only about 20% of the material, let's say, come from me. And so the 80% that's left open is where I don't have the control of what's said in the class. I'm holding that space for the discussion where the students will actually bring the value into the class. I'm just kicking off the conversation. And so again, I'll, I'll use business as an example because that's where a lot of our students are very entrepreneurial. Let's take a marketing group exercise. We'll talk about the different ways that students generate attention for their business or get leads for their business or customers for their business. I don't have to teach every single detail. We have to talk about what's working because that's way more relevant than something that worked in the past, right? It's what's working right now. And so having this conversation with the students I just hold the the space for the conversation to happen, but I don't try to control the outcome. And I know that so much of what they will learn isn't just the notes that I have on my paper. It's the discussions they're going to have with each other. And so I think it's the relinquishing of the controls to a degree, which is hard because as a leader, you want the, you want to make sure that it works. And so you're very hands on. But if you can invite the students into the space to lead, and to have some of that 
to, to collaborate, I guess, in their own education, then it invites them to be a part of it more than just follow what I'm saying. You have to do this. It gives them the space to engage, introduce their own ideas. They're going to feel more heard. That's how we actually empower the student voice is by giving their voice a, maybe not the majority, but at least a percentage of the message of our education has to come from the students, not from the, the teachers, so to speak. That would be my take. I, and I a lot there, but. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's all good. It's all good. Because I was thinking to myself, right? So we talk about that often and we say, is school supposed to be about understanding or compliance? Mm. And what are we rewarding in school? Are we restore, are we rewarding actual knowledge acquisition and understanding or are we awarding compliance? You did it the right way. You know, I and I think back to when I first started teaching and I was modeling other older teachers that I saw. I look back at some of that stuff that I did now and I'm like, oh, Jones, you were not good because it was a compliance thing. And it is easy to slip into that control the outcome type of situation, whether it's and I don't know if it's a pride thing. I don't know if it's a scores thing. There's all kinds of arguments that would come from every side, but also because it's a hard thing. It is difficult to wrestle with something that you don't have control over the outcome and you don't know what's right or wrong. You know what you're doing. Is that the best you're doing? I'll never forget one of the the scariest times. I say scary. One of the nerve nerve wracking times I had, I was in a class and it was about project-based learning. I was already teaching in the classroom and I was doing this for professional development. And I went and we were assigned a project and I, I did the project. And I went to hand in the project and I handed it to the professor and I could hug the guy now. I didn't want to then, but I could now. And I went to hand him the paper and um, he, I said, um, okay, here you go. Is this done? And he looked at me and he goes, I don't know, is it? And I like, I, I like pulled the paper back. Like, wait, what do you mean? I, I want an A on this class, you know? And he said, well, you're going to, you're going to have to tell me if it's done or not. I can't tell you if it's done or not. And it was just that mentality of you have to do things to the best of your ability based on the best of your ability and not based on whatever arbitrary, objective, somewhat subjective score that you get on it. And so with that in mind, this is funny because this is something I'm actually doing right now with my staff. And of course, so I floated it and it got the reaction that I wanted. I'm going to meet with my staff and I'm going to throw the question out to them. They're going to be in groups. They're going to talk. And this is that 15 minute impossible goal thing that made me think. And I'm going to ask them with a time limit, school should be very difficult, but it shouldn't be difficult to do well in school and ask them what that means to them in accordance with our vision of the graduate that we have of the student. And I want to hear the conversations that they have, but I don't want the well, that doesn't even make sense. That contradicts itself, that this. So I want to set that hard time limit. So thank you for that, because I'm going to add that. I want to set that hard time limit because you're right. That doesn't allow us time to complain because it takes and uses that whole, I want things to be perfect. I want things to be good. And I want things to be right. And flips that to where it's used to generate answers because, well, I'll tell you what, I don't want that timer to end and not have an answer. And I want my answer to be better than the group over there. Right, right. You know, so let's get to work on this. That's really powerful. I, I like that. And I, that would be such a powerful model to use more often in school. Like, here's the problem. And we're starting to do that. We have a new math curriculum that we've put in where 
the teacher doesn't give the answers, doesn't drill and kill, doesn't say, okay, there's how you do this problem. Now practice doing this problem. The teacher gives them a problem and says, okay, solve it with maybe an incomplete set of data, maybe not. And the students have to work through it and they do it working together. You made me, made me think a couple things. One, I'll go through my general class layouts, like how I go about creating a single class. And it, it refers a little bit back to what you were saying that I would encourage with the, uh, with the, the staff, which is I open with a question of the day. And so the question is always something that is divergent, right? Something that doesn't have a singular right answer. And rather than having them vocalize the answer, I have them write it down. And what that does is, one, it gets them thinking. They're, they're thinking while they're writing. It's helping them think through their thoughts. But two, it stops groupthink. So if I just said, here's the question, and we went around the room, by the time you get to the last person, they've formulated their answer based on what everybody else has said. So you hold space for every answer, and we do this in a small group. So they write the answer to the question, then everyone will share. And as they're sharing, I'm writing notes on the whiteboard. So I'm like pulling up what different people said and seeing like, where do they connect? Where are they different? Sometimes I'll reflect questions back to the group. What do you guys think about this? Oh, here's a difference. Is there any different perspectives on this? Or, or oh, here's a debate. What do you, how many people think this? How many people think this? And so based on what's said, I'm able to kind of facilitate the discussion. So we start with the question that usually leads into some curious discussion. Then it's usually one or two frameworks, which we've done now in these, these episodes is a couple of the frameworks that we'll go through in our classes, things like that, that are simple concepts like divergent thinking model, values first, goals, process, explain what the model means, five, maybe five minutes of me talking, and then we'll do an activity around it. And so that would be like setting your values, define what are your five core values. And they take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, come back. Then we talk about the goals piece. All right, what are your goals for the next three months? And that's a whole class. And so all I bring to the class in that case is one question, one framework, and then two activities. And then we close with a takeaway. And so every student will go around and say, they'll write it down again. What are you taking away from this that you can implement? Or what do you, what did you learn today? What are, what is your takeaway? They write it down and they share it. They share their own, but then they also hear everyone else's and that pulls out nuggets that they forgot. And everybody's taking notes throughout. So what I've learned throughout the process of trying to create this, this alternative through Divergent U is that the less I talk, the better the workshop is sometimes. Uh, I came in early, like when I first started doing this, I thought I had to give all the information. I have to say everything in one workshop. And the more information I gave, the less was retained. Uh, the less was executed on the takeaways were not as, as potent, let's say, or, or implementable. But if I just focus on one small thing and allowed the students to contribute to the discussion, then by the end of the class, the takeaways were much more than if I had been trying to share everything. And so I think going back to the point of control, I try more and more to remember, and it requires some level of faith in terms of just belief that the class will go as planned without me knowing what's going to happen in the class. <laughs> like I don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be for every student or what every student's going to say. I have to be prepared for things to come up. But believing that that will happen every time and, and trusting that I don't have to deliver all of the value. I can listen and reflect off of the students themselves and then 
pull their, like help them find the nuggets in what they're saying and then share it out with the rest of the room. And often the big, the biggest takeaways don't come from me. The biggest lessons in the class aren't something I said. It's something that another student said. One, because they're more relatable to the student and they, they're speaking directly to where they're at. But two, because it's organic. It just comes out naturally. And that authenticity also helps reinforce it. Uh, so that's my general layout is you start with a question. You have one framework, one activity, maybe second framework, second activity tops, and then closing takeaway. And that's it. That's ge- I, I diverge from that a little bit, but that's generally how I set up a single workshop. Check you out. Just writing lesson plans for people now. <laughs> They're listening. You know, it's funny. People couldn't see me. I was laughing when you first said that about, about the, the question, because if, you know, we talk about how scary it is or how nervous you get with that letting go of control in the classroom when you're supposed to be teaching something where, well, even I said it wrong. You're, it's not that you're supposed to be, you are teaching. It's just that students learn better. And the reason you said that is because they, people have greater takeaways when their ideas, their thoughts, their beliefs are internally generated instead of given to them. And that's the takeaway when they have genuine interest. Now you give me a class full of teenagers and who are they going to listen to more? They're going to listen to what the teacher's saying or are they going to listen to what's being internally generated by their peers? And I mean, hands down, I, you know, I think everybody that's listening is probably nodding. Yep. Peers. But the idea that you bring a question, maybe another question in a framework, boy, if people could understand that, teachers would be flying to teaching this way because it's, it's less work. Yeah. The yeah. mundane work. And it's more rewarding. So you get more traction. It's more rewarding because you see more of those light bulbs go off. People love that light bulb moment. And it requires you to be present yeah. and paying attention to the students. And we talk about relationship building in school and how important that is. But if you're present and you're listening to students and you're, you're bouncing back and forth with them in, a, in an authentic conversation, to use your word, you can't lose. Yeah, it, you can even, full, full, one way to do that tactically, I, I guess, is when you're writing out what the students are saying. And I can't get everything they say because they, they, you know, they write down their answer and I'll like take a note on the whiteboard. And often my, my handwriting is hard to read. It's like, so that gets challenging. <laughs> Especially when I'm quickly journaling. It's almost more so for, for my notes than than them to see it in some <laughs> sometimes. But but one thing that you, you can tangibly do in that is, you know, you call back to something a student said earlier. And like, you know, this person was just saying that, oh, th- this reminds me of what they said earlier. It builds a relationship one-on-one with the student without having to take the time to build the relationship one-on-one with the student because you're simply remembering something that they said. And that is a fulfilling thing. Like, oh, I said something that, that the teacher's referencing back to and pointing out as a good insight. And that the best teaching, in my opinion, in that type of space is when you can do it with every student, when you find those nuggets for every student. That's the hardest thing at times when, let's say a student often isn't sharing as deep of a response or it's trying to find a nugget in what they're saying. They're maybe not as engaged. I will sometimes ask another question back to them. Like, oh, I see what you're saying here. Does that mean this to you? What do you think about this? Or how are you framing that in this, in this mindset or something that gets them thinking to, to add something back in? I always try in every workshop and just pull at least one nugget from everyone in the, the, the class. And I keep the classes are smaller. It's so like 12 students or less, sometimes six to eight. So it, it's a more intimate space that's easier to do. 
If you have 25 or 30 students, that can be more challenging, at least in a single class. But over a period of time, you can start to pull out some of those nuggets and and have those one-on-one interactions in the middle of the class with the other students. But that's not easy to do either. It's definitely challenging. Supporting your teachers and students seems to be a struggle. They just don't seem to be engaged. You wish they would take more responsibility for their learning and culture of the building, but they just don't seem to be empowered enough to do it. So my question is, have you checked out the book Seeing to Lead yet? It's all about creating a true educational experience where learning, growth, leadership, and community take center stage. Full of strategies and resources, Seeing to Lead is about attaining that goal by employing a model that supports, engages, and empowers all individuals to become leaders themselves. Pick up a copy today at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com. Remember, you don't become a leader and then decide you need to support and recognize others more than yourself. It is the moment you realize it's about supporting and recognizing others that you become a leader. Seeingtolead.com. You know, it makes me wonder, going back to, because we're talking about the, the development of the whole person to reach those highest levels that they can possibly reach. And I think about the person that leaves high school fully confident, able to think divergently, able to set their goals, see problems, address those problems, come up with solutions, move forward, reinvent themselves, right? I I mean, isn't that the thing going on these days where if you want to thrive, you need to reinvent yourself every once in a while to make sure that you're keeping up with what's going on. And I can't help but think when you have younger students in school and there's a lot of play involved. You're learning through play, you're social interacting, things are coming up that you have to overcome just as a matter of events. And they're, they're, look, they're not life-threatening, they're not huge, but they're things that build at an age-appropriate time. We get away from that in education through scripting. So is the answer to just throw out the rules and the scripting of education? I mean, there are some, obviously, that are that are useful. The challenge, right? But just to get them back into where they're faced with challenges. And that's why, to go back to that question that I was going to ask of my faculty, it should be challenging. It should be difficult. We should be helping kids or setting kids up to face problems and to try and untangle the Gordian knot because that's what they're going to be dealing with when they leave. And the ones that can figure it out are going to figure it out and they're going to succeed. The ones that aren't, are always going to be left, and maybe this is just weird of me, but they're going to be left sitting there wondering, could I have been something better? Could I have done better in life? Am I the best human being I can be? Now, they might not use those terms, but there have been times in my life, and I know people have talked to me where there have been times in their lives where they say, um, and I've said, you know, I should be doing better than this. I can be doing better than this. Why am I not? Now, in in my own personal, my personal situations, um, I've taken those action steps and I face those things. But it's been a learning process. And I I divulge this to you that I I did not have a good middle school, high school experience. So I had to kind of do it through experience, where that's why I think this divergent you piece and these concepts that you're teaching, this knowledge that you're passing down to the listeners is so valuable because it will help fast track students to not have to go through the experiences, to have that in their back pocket so that 
they can be successful quicker. On that, I know I just kind of rambled a little bit. No, but- I know I have a lot of thoughts. There it made me think of a framework when you were talking about do we just tear it down? How do we actually build something that works? It's a really delicate balance. Mm. There's a framework that really simple. It's like a, a spectrum, basically. On one end, you have complete structure, and the other end, we have you have complete flow. Is what we call it. We call it freedom spectrum. Is one of the frameworks that we talk about. So, where does freedom exist? Does freedom exist when you have entirety of structure and everything is structured, or do you have freedom when everything is not structured? There's just a flow state, and we debate it back and forth. Where do you find yourself on that? Do you feel like you gravitate more to the to the the structure? Do you gravitate more to the flow? And there's not a singular right answer. But what's interesting when building divergent use curriculum is finding that balance between how do we create a structure that's repeatable and how do we allow the flow to exist within so that there is something grounding it. We don't want to do away with everything. We can't, if we do away with the structure completely, then that's anarchy. And if we completely in the structure, that's dictatorship. And so you don't want to dictate every minute of your day, right? If you structured your day perfectly, you'd have this minute doing this minute. Like that would be the perfect structure. That doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound appealing. That might be productive, but is that meaningful? How does that, is that a, a life that you want to live every day of every single minute is structured? There's no free time. There's no flow. You don't want to have one extreme. And so when developing the, the curriculum itself in the program, I think that was the balance I was trying to find, which the way that we did it was grounding it in the frameworks. So every workshop or, or every piece of the curriculum is, has a couple frameworks to go through and then a workbook activity that goes along with it for every class. Outside of that, I want to give the facilitators, the coaches, the teachers, the freedom to come up with their own questions of the day, the freedom to come up with their own activities so that even the, the teacher isn't confined to the structure, right? Because that can happen too. And then the students kind of flow through that. And the 12 limitations we talked about last time is a concept that was trying to get the big picture. Like what is the overarching, encompassing way to approach overcoming limitations? Well, what are the limitations? And then let's work through those. So the frameworks that we we go through, are, we try to be very universal, but it it is a tough balance between how do you keep it structured so that it's repeatable and how do you individualize it? I don't know if we have that line perfectly, but I, I think that's where trying to find that balance is the ongoing challenge, I think, of education in general. Yeah. And you know, if, geez, if we had that line perfect, we, why would we even be talking? You know, we, Christ. I had a, I had a big smile on my face that the listeners couldn't see when one, you said there's no single right answer. Uh, of course not. We're talking about divergent thinking, but, um, you know, and the idea that it's on a continuum, and because I, I smiled again when you said I, we have another framework for that. I'm, it almost reminds <laughs> me of the commercial. We have an app for that. <laughs> right. We, you know, just that idea that it is about tight, loose control. It really does come down to tight, loose control. There are times where we do have to control things for certain contingencies that occur. And there are other times that we have to be very loose and realize that there is a need for loose. I think the trick comes down to, because in the last one, we talked about modeling this piece. I think the trick comes down to explicitly teaching students the idea of tight, loose control and why it's required at certain times and at certain times it isn't. For accountability purposes, for responsibility purposes, 
for safety purposes when we talk about schools. Mm -hmm. But without doing that, we're really missing out on the ability to help students retain that divergent thinking piece. And by exercising too tight of control to, you know, meet state mandates or state testing requirements or worry about scores or funding formulas, we're really just, I don't want to use the word grind, but we're really just introducing students to the grind instead of introducing them to flow and showing them the limitless possibilities they have on the cap for their success. Yeah, I agree. Oh, one other example that came up for me, um, I just wrote this down earlier, I don't remember when it came up in the conversation, of the the convergent thinking versus divergent thinking in school. So when I was in college, uh, I was always really good at math. And I liked to find creative ways to solve the problems. So sometimes I would come up with equations that weren't what the teacher thought, but they got in the solution. And sometimes it was quicker. And so I had an algebra test that I took that I got every answer right on and I showed all my work and I got an F on the, the test. And so when I got it back, I was like, I went to the professor and I was asking, how did I get an F when I got every answer right and I showed all my work? And he told me, well, you didn't do it how I taught you to do it. And so you have to learn to follow the process, not just get the right answer. And I took it to the math department and asked them, how is this right? I got every answer right. I showed on my work and they sent it back to him. He had to give it back to me with an A on it, which felt pretty good. He was not, a, <laughs> he was not happy about that. But it's an example of the convergent versus divergent thinking, right? It's the, you have to follow the process the way I teach you versus empowering that creative approach. And that was actually, I sometimes reference that as one of the moments that I decided I wanted to do something different with education because it was, it was a moment I realized like, this isn't how it should be. I should be able to answer the question. If I can come up with a, a better way to answer it and I get the right answer, what's wrong with that? And so that came up for me. I don't remember when that, when I thought that would came up. This is my notes when you were talking. No, it's, that's all good. And I, I'm so glad you used the word empowerment. It made me feel a little warm inside because you, uh, you know, so many people like to talk about empowering other people when really what they're doing is a, a real base form of delegating to other people. Empowerment is not about saying, I need this done. Go ahead and do it as long as you do it the way I would do it. That's not empowerment. And oftentimes that's a mistake made in, I mean, every world, but you notice it more in the educational world that, look, empowering somebody to do something is saying, I need this done. I have faith that you can do it. Get it done. I don't care how you get it done as long as you can get it done to a satisfactory manner. And that's what it's about. It, you know, does it really matter how students can get something done as far as becoming successful towards what they believe they want to do or be if they the end result is that they learn how to do it and that they do a good job of it? And we should start looking at more stepping back more in a, in a role of support, <laughs> letting the kids be engaged so that they can be empowered to find out what they need. Yeah, and letting them fail and letting them make the mistakes oh, and yes. not allow it, not always punishing failure, let's say. I think our system does a good job of that, that, of punishing failure, which is not necessarily something that we want it to do, right? At least not as, uh, not to the degree that it sometimes does. I think it can really hurt students' confidence. And I, that empowerment of failure even is where the freedom to learn really gets unlocked because the students then don't 
have that block or that hesitation or that critic telling them, no, I can't do this. If they know they're safe to fail, it makes it a lot easier to try. Where if, if you don't feel safe to fail, then you've got to be, you're very tight in some sense because you got to get it right where everything could fall apart. So then it's tough balance, but especially when with the youth as they're developing, failure has to be acceptable and not only acceptable, but okay and promoted to a degree that when you fail, that's an opportunity to learn. And it's hard to do that when, when grades are the, the metric of success because there is a pass fail. And when you fail, it's not a good thing. That's a mark on your record, right? Like that becomes a, a very scary prospect for a lot of students. That's so true. I'm, you know, there's mic drop number one. I'm so glad you said that about failure because we talk about fail forward. You have to fail to get better. You have to fail to be successful. You have to fail to do this. And that's something that should be encouraged. Oh, here's your F. Move along. Nice job failing. I, you know, it just doesn't, again, our actions are not matching what's coming out of our mouth. And that's what we really need to focus on. So as we go back and forth and around on these areas and these different episodes on the series that we're doing, it's funny how, at least to me, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You know where the problem is or where the fix is for education with this divergent thinking thing is that we have to have our actions match our words. They're not matching. We do a lot of talking about student voice, individualized, empowerment, failure to learn. But our actions, when that happens, are completely opposite or at least definitely not in line with what's coming out of our mouth. So the students aren't going to believe what's coming out of our mouth. They're going to believe the actions right? because they know what the consequences are and they're very real and they're very scary for a lot of kids. And with parents at home who are very serious about this, it becomes even scarier for kids and that pressure builds up. So that's at least that's where I'm coming from with this is that it looks like we just need to do a lot more modeling of what we're talking about. Absolutely. So look, we I can't believe the time has flown by for this already. We've been talking for quite some time. I knew this was going to be good. And I don't want to put you on the spot right now. I might put you on the spot, but uh, maybe we'll have to do a bonus episode where we do a little more. But look, Sam, you said so much. I'm just going to try and squeeze one more nugget out of you because it's something I ask all the guests that come on the podcast typically. And I, I haven't asked this to you yet. And I think I might have said in episode one that I was going to save it till the end. With all that we've talked about, what's the most important piece of advice you would give to leaders as they work to better support, engage, and empower those they serve when it comes to them being the best or achieving the best possible version of themselves they can? The starting point would be seeing everybody as an individual. So I think often we put people in a box of the role that they have or the class that they're in or the, the, the any kind of box we put someone in. I think we need to see the people we lead as individuals who have, going back to episode, I think it was two that we spoke on this, values, goals, process. They have their own unique values. They have their own unique goals. And so by seeing the people we lead as individuals and listening to what their unique goals are, it allows us to align with what they want. And I think often leaders are trying to get people to do what what the leader wants. And I feel like my job as a leader is to help the people I lead achieve what they want. And so the first step is being able to see everybody that you work with as an individual. And that has their own ambitions, that has their own values, that has their own process. 
and figuring out a way to align with and support that process of growth forward is what I would say. I have nothing to say after that. <laughs> I, I have a lot that I'm thinking about, but I have nothing to say. Sam, this has been fantastic, seriously. And I do want to catch up to you with that bonus episode. You've offered so much value talking about Divergent You, talking about the importance of Divergent Thinking, how to develop personally, professionally, uh, how to develop as a human being, really. And and the importance of that in, in this day and age, you've offered us frameworks, you've offered us strategies. Look, I can't imagine somebody not looking you up, looking up Divergent You, wanting to find out more. So if you could, why don't you give us a rundown of all the ways they can do that, maybe some of the things you offer, and um, I'll hook them up in the show notes too so they both hear them and can then just hit them. Absolutely. So Divergent U is our website. It's divergent-u.com. If you want to contact me directly, it's samterrell at gmail.com. And the for anybody that is in a phase of life that is trying to figure out what their next big step is, maybe you've graduated high school, maybe your kids have graduated high school, they're in that college age, or maybe you're thinking about restarting yourself. Divergent U is a one-year program in Orlando, Florida. It's nine months, fall, winter, spring. We end with a huge graduation ceremony where every student that goes through the program gets to speak on stage. They set up a booth for what they've accomplished. There's a few hundred people at these events. You record it. It's all posted online. It's very celebratory. It's always an amazing experience. But anybody who is interested in going through that process over the course of the year, this is a full one-year alternative to college, personal development, professional development, leadership development. I would definitely reach out to us. Go to our website, divergent-u.com. We will be opening our enrollment for for in June. But you can reach out to us before that if you are interested in always, you know, add yourself to our email newsletter, send us an email. And then for me personally, I love speaking on podcasts like this. This is so much fun for me. So anybody who has a podcast, know a podcast that might be a good fit for me to spread this message more, please reach out. I love speaking at schools. It's something I've done a lot, very often. Any way that you like to collaborate, if you see something I don't see, please reach out. It's again, samtrell.gmail.com. And this has been incredible. I'm very grateful for the time. Fantastic. You know, and I just want to send a thank you to all the listeners as we wrap this up. And I just want to tell them how grateful I am that they continue to listen and find value in episodes like this. And you can help both Sam and myself by hitting subscribe, sharing this episode with uh, your biggest takeaway on social media. Make sure you hit us up on any social media so that we can see what you took away and we can continue to improve what we provide to you as far as resources and information. So this has been great, Sam. I really appreciate you coming on and I can't wait to talk to you. Bonus episode and, um, you know, whenever we get the chance. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step, be sure to take action on something you have heard here today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Scene to Lead podcast. If you would like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at Dr. C.S. Jones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast today, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show, leaving an honest rating and review, and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. 
Also, one last thing. Have you had a chance to pick up my latest five-star rated book yet? Grab your copy of Seeing to Lead anywhere you buy books or at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com, where you can learn more and continue to improve. Now go have a successful week. 